0: Welcome to WEMCAST with me, Owen Walker, the pre-hospital trauma lead. In this episode, we are going to interview Jerome Moat. Jerome is a paramedic that trained in London for the London Armament Service um, and then transitioned to Yorkshire to embrace his love of climbing. He then returned to London during the first and second wave of the COVID pan- pandemic to help out. He features on, on a, uh, a fantastic documentary about life, the life of a paramedic um, and how he uses climbing to transition from from being a paramedic, uh, which actually won a global film festival recently. The film's called Lockdown Rock Up and follows the life of Jerome as he uses rock climbing to escape uh, work on the front line of uh, of healthcare during uh, during COVID nineteen. The film won the best short prize at the Kendall Mountain Film Festival and uh, celebrates mountaineering and outdoor culture. So the film highlights the challenges Jerome faced but but working both in Yorkshire and in London. And it tells his story about the first few weeks of the March 2020 lockdown. So welcome to the podcast Jerome.
1: Thanks very much, Ewan, thanks for the introduction.
0: Pleasure, absolute pleasure. Um, So let's just dive into the questions. Um, and just get your perspective on a few things really so could you just speak to the main reflections of this uh, of the movie Lockdown Rock Up and uh, why you first agreed to help make the movie
1: yeah well um, the film really is a combination of what Nico the filmmaker and I wanted to express from from the pandemic Uh, so Nico works in mainstream TV, his day job is working for uh, a TV show down in London. Uh, he does some freelance stuff on the side, um, but he's also, like me, a passionate climber. Uh, he loves the outdoors. He loves getting out. Um, and as is true for many people during the pandemic, it forced him to reevaluate what he was doing, uh, the direction he wanted to move towards, um, which was ultimately um, outdoor uh, filming and, and climbing uh so what's interesting is that his father works he, he's an, an a A&E doctor uh, and his sister-in-law is a physio for the NHS so he wanted to honor the NHS in some way um uh, and and I on the other hand wanted to show as honestly as possible the reality of working on the front line during the pandemic um and I think many of my friends and family um And probably it's true to say a vast swathe of the population have felt quite removed from what's going on during the first wave. Um, Like the nature of COVID essentially is it all happens behind closed doors, Uh, whether that's people isolating their rooms, uh, whether it's, um, you know, isolating in hospitals or whatever. Um, So I wanted to connect uh, people to the reality of the pandemic. Um, Now, There's, there's, there are significant limitations to what we could film, uh, you know, during, during the, uh, during the actual movie, um, especially as an independent filmmaker without a big production company behind you. Um, So we had to kind of mock it up uh, on the ambulance and we didn't use London, we used Yorkshire because that's where it was at the time. Um, So we used an interview, which he did with me as the narrative to kind of like an overarching narrative um, and the whole process was actually really cool and and quite interesting. Um, it kind of required a quite a broad skill set from both of us. Uh, we you know we wanted to make it both relevant to climbers, to experienced climbers, um, and also to non-climbers, uh, so they would kind of understand. So I th- I hope it was kind of mildly interesting to to both parties.
0: <laughs> no, it certainly was, Jerome. And and what it really orchestrated. Uh, and And showed quite nicely actually was the with the transition uh, from working on the front line and you know modalities of working in PPE, uh, working you know under duress days and nights, weekend shifts, lots of different you know disruptive elements to 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 the pandemic. and then quite nicely, how you transition to. To, to rock climbing and just that kind of septic feel across the across the across the rocks and just how you connect with rock climbing. So I think it, it showed both really quite nicely. And and Jerome kind of leads me nicely into the second question really, which is sort of how have you found that rock climbing is helped you transition from a difficult period uh, and time at work?
1: Absolutely. I mean, you know, I'm a paramedic and I love my job and I will probably be a paramedic in some capacity for the rest of my career, as we touched on earlier. Um, but I'm also a climber and, you know, climbers have very strong identities. They identify very strongly with the sport. Um, it's one of those kind of fringe sports that I think attracts a certain type of person. Um, so without one, I feel like something's missing. I feel a bit incomplete. Um, I mean, it, in our line of work as you know we go to some pretty unpleasant places we see some pretty unpleasant things whether that's people in pain um you know life changing injuries the death of relatives you know we see people at their worst um and it can give you quite a warped sense of of humanity and society um it it can seem like a very hostile place you know full of risk full of threat and i think it's unhealthy to dwell on That environment for prolonged periods of time. So through through climbing, I go to you know some pretty epic places, um, both in the UK and abroad. Um, And I want my memory, I want my thoughts, you know, when I'm thinking and daydreaming, I want them to be filled with those beautiful places, um, you know, the cliffs, the mountains, the elements, and that works on both a macro and a micro scale. So I love traveling, you know, as many of us do. Um, I love going to these places, to the Alps and Kalislinia and wherever, but also thinking about the moves and the holds of a specific route. Like when you pr- project the difficult route, it's like having an intimate relationship with a piece of rock. Um, you learn in such like intimate detail the shape of the holds, the difficulty of the moves, how you feel on certain crux passages. I mean, like a 30-metre route, you can have over 100 moves. And each one of those, you will learn through repetition, through practice in, in really great detail. Just being able to visualise a route at, for instance, Malham, Malham Cove in, in the Yorkshire Dales, which is a fantastic place for, for sport climbing. Um, it's just, you know, like a really pleasurable thing. And it, I think it's, I liken it to a form of meditation where your, your mind has to focus in such great detail to climbing the route. Um, you have to overcome any performance anxiety, overcome any fear in order to, to be successful. Um, and I think quite a useful comparison is like, I used to play the cello when I was, I was at school, um, and learning to recite a piece of music is very similar to, to projecting a heart root, um, you know, a root that's near your physical limit. Uh, it's, like, it's like playing a really intricate, technical piece of music flawlessly. And you, when you visualize, you use the occipital lobe, I'm sure I'm gonna be shot by some <laughs> neurologists here, neuroscientists, but as I understand, you use the occipital lobe of your brain and to create these visualizations and simulations, and I always joke that climbers have very overdeveloped occipital lobes, <laughs> you know, because we're always daydreaming. We're always like trying to put ourselves in in the position of of climbing a route. um How we'll feel, you know, how to the extent of how how the sun will feel on our back, the wind will feel. Um, you know, you get to know you know roots in in quite intimate detail, and. I think that's like a really quite a precious thing to have.
0: That's fantastic. And that, that, that kind of kinesthetic feel and, or memory that you can display even in the moment or just recollecting those, those those feelings, how that hole feels, how the rock feels uh, and then maybe identifying with that sounds, sounds like it's um, not only, not only helps you transition, but that, but, helps you a focus completely shift the focus away from from the immediacy of work and 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 the difficulty of work so that that's fantastic and really actually makes sense to me jerome so that's absolutely fantastic so jerome what what are some of the fundamental differences that you found working in london compared to working in yorkshire
1: i mean what um London for a start had it much worse than anywhere else in the country by a long way, both in the first wave and in the second wave. So as I said in the film, you know, when when the pandemic hit, it's where there was the greatest need. So I felt, and it's my hometown, you know. I, I really wanted to I, I it it raised my heart to see it, you know, in that kind of state. So I felt like I had to give myself to it. Um and I mean, London is a city like no other, um, you know, the variety of the kind of calls you go to, um, the exposure to, to a whole variety of jobs, the patient demographic its just a fascinating place to work. Um, so I love it for that. And there are some conveniences of working in London. You know, you, I get to work with other paramedics, which I don't in in Sheffield or Yorkshire. Um, there are really convenient things like make ready. You know which just make your life a little bit easier. So you know the drugs are prepared, the vehicles are prepared at the start of shift. Um so that makes working conditions actually quite favorable in London. Um but uh working in Sheffield, so there are three stations here. Um everyone knows each other. It's a bit more of a villagey kind of feel um and you know you just build a really strong relationships with your with your colleagues and um yeah I, I, I value both of them so I pre- I prefer working in London but I also really miss Sheffield in Yorkshire when I'm when I'm away.
0: Jerome what what does in your mind what climbing give you from a mental health perspective um, just when you've been on a tough shift or tough run of shifts how does it sort of give back to you?
1: Um, well firstly it it gives me a a sense of purpose it gives you a purpose outside of my job um i think uh as healthcare professionals uh you know if you're a paramedic a doctor or a nurse or whatever you know we identify very strongly with our roles um we're very proud of what we do uh i mean what's you know what's it's a very noble thing to do isn't it to to try and improve people's health their welfare and occasionally to save their lives you know (laughs) Occasionally, um, and I do identify very strongly with being a paramedic, but I also um, identify with being a climber. And I was a climber well before um, I was. I trained as a paramedic, so uh, it doesn't really matter how bad a sh- shift has gone. Um, I've always, I've always feel like I've got a secret weapon, you know, like a, an identity to fall back on. Um, climbing is also a very physical, physically demanding sport. Um, I think it's, I mean, it's a sport, but it's also a skill and it's a discipline and it's something to be crafted and honed. And to reach your full potential in something like climbing and to climb your hardest, it requires such great focus, determination, uh, attention to detail on a on quite an obsessive kind of level. So when you're in the zone, as it were, you know, trying to root a route, a boulder problem, or whatever. There is there's no real space for intrusive images, for negative voices. You must be fully present and tap into that flow state that is the holy grail of, you know, of each effort. Um, you don't always get there, but you know, <laughs> it's something to strive for. Um, so there have actually been studies on how bouldering in particular is really good for your mental health because it just doesn't give space to, to any, you know, anything that may be occupying you at the time. Um, so I'm a bit advocate of of doing something that gives you an identify an identity outside of your career or your work, um, and being a, a like a, a really quite a niche activity, albeit growing. There's also a fantastic community of people within it, um, like a, a really good support network, which I'm really grateful for. So I don't fully invest myself in the job, you know, in being a paramedic, and it also works the other way around, You know, if I if I get injured, or you know, if I feel detrained or weak, um, or have had a bad session, I can also apply myself to to work, to clinical development, and so on. And I think I feel that that's what's really been lacking in in both ways. Really, is the, the availability to climb. Um, you know, all the climbing walls are shut, uh, and being in London means like outdoor climbing just isn't an option. Um, so I've I've I have felt that absence. Um, and when you have a relationship that's that's so strong with something, and it's suddenly taken away, it's like you lose part of your identity. Identity, and um, that's that's true of many climbers, I think, through the pandemic. Um, so yeah,
0: absolutely. And I, so I'm a big advocate of actually having uh, another identity outside of the work. Place um, because, like you said, you know, if that if one is stripped away from you, or um, sometimes is 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 lost somehow, it's not your whole self which is which is lost in the process. So absolutely. Now, there's a conduit to a second question. I'm going to ask you about the demand profile around the first and second wave, but I think just the way you've answered that nicely around the mental health piece around climbing, just what strains have you seen in the mental health on from the front line from other staff and and how's that played out we'll come back to the we'll come back to the first and second wave and how it's escalated but just from your observations how have you seen this adversely affect the front line
1: yeah well i mean that's a, a really important topic and it's very you know I think it's something that's we're growing with what we're having more and more awareness of around health, health workers and the emergency services in particular um so uh I, I have a colleague of mine in Sheffield um and he wrote a really fantastic article about mental health in the ambulance service in particular uh, maybe we can just put a little show note and, and attach the article at the end to, to this blog um, but he in it he says that we're never you know our next job could be our last and that's quite a profound thing you know and I think all it takes is to be in the wrong place to see something that's particularly emotive and you know who, who knows how you'll react that's the thing it's a, it's an unpredictable, unpredictable environment and we're never quite sure. Um, and I think um, the pandemic, through the pandemic, we've made some, you know, we had to make some pretty difficult decisions, particularly in the first wave when hospitals were so overwhelmed. You know, decisions that should have been way above our, our pay grade about, you know, who to take to hospital, or who should stay at home, and potentially, you know, end of life. Um, the article also um, says that perhaps we should be rethinking how we deal with stress in the ambulance service, which is one you know, as you probably are aware, uh, paramedics and ambulance staff have some of the highest rates of sickness within the NHS. So going off sick through stress can be quite an isolating experience. Um, you know, and we, we all know that the best kind of, therapy is actually talking to our colleagues you know better than any kind of counseling um so after a bad job um without a doubt you know speaking to your speaking to your colleague or colleagues or going back to the mess room it's just the best way to decompress um they understand i think they understand and that shared experience makes all the difference you know it's, it's you can't really go home you know and say that that kind of stuff to talk about you know the the young suicide that you've just been to or whatever it just doesn't it, you know it just doesn't quite um have the same effect there's just not quite the same shared experience there so you know when, when you've been to a, a shift you know six covid patients during the first wave uh two of whom arrested uh you know one was a doa a dead on arrival you know it's just really hard for your family to and all friends to to kind of interpret so maybe instead of People, you know, staff going off sick and 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 being completely completely separate. Maybe we should be keeping them in the mess room, you know, keeping them on light duties, so we don't totally remove that support network and that routine, you know, which we will kind of work within. So I think we sh- we should possibly be having a discussion around better deals, better ways to deal with stress um, in the workforce. Um, yeah. I think that uh, there is. We have a long way to go in this respect.
0: Also, I mean, yeah, we, I great. mean,
1: we 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 have this in London. It's very unique to London, but we have this huge network of, of Australian paramedics, which basically we've uh, poached from from Australia, and they're fantastic. You know, they they brought you know a new perspective. They brought fresh blood, and they've completely changed the culture within London. And um, they were only just coming in when I. When I left to, to join the Yorkshire Ambulance Service. And you know, every, every time I've gone back and there are more Australian paramedics, it's just like a, a fresh, you know, a, a breath of fresh air. And it's and it's really, you know, pretty awesome to see. And you know, for the last they come over, you know, full of enthusiasm and they want to travel. They want to travel Europe and, and they want to work somewhere different. And I think, um, you know, the, the fact that they're not able to travel anymore. Um, And the fact that, you know, the UK has been so badly affected, particularly London, with COVID um, means that possibly we'll be seeing some of them leave. Um, And that would be a great shame because they're, you know, they're they're a really valued part of the ambulance service, the LAS now. So, yeah, I think that's we have a, a, a long way to go there as well.
0: Jerome, could you speak to the c- current climate from your perspective and how it compares to the first wave? So sort of how quickly has the demand profile for the second wave escalated versus the first?
1: Yeah, well, um, so the first wave was very sudden, you know, it, it kind of, came, we saw it coming from from Spain, from Italy, from France, um, and the, the effects were very immediate. You know, there was a really like quick spike but also, it kind of, um, it kind of departed quite quickly as well, quite rapidly. Um, so it was chaos for you know a month or so. Um, but then yeah, it was kind of we had unprecedented levels of you know the, the call number just dropped off a cliff. Um, and it all, it, I mean, the first wave was it was all very new, and that was both a blessing and a curse. You know, every day we were changing our practice to to um according to you know the the research that was coming out and so on about how to deal with covid patients about you know ppe um so you know there were a whole host of challenges that were new and and you know none of us had worked in a pandemic before so it was all quite novel um, and we were also receiving you know this vast amount of appreciation and support from the public which um which was incredible you know we were we were having recognition you know that we would never have imagined um whereas the second wave uh well i mean i think the worst thing about it is that we we could all see it coming um and you know that it was kind of preventable if we had the right political will or like public will i'm not sure you know on from from where it stemmed but it was preventable and I think we, every healthcare professional, you know, every paramedic was just begging for for lockdown to come sooner, um, which sadly it didn't, um. So it's it's been yeah, it's it's been chaos, um, and it's been much bigger. It's had a much bigger impact, um, on the ambulance service, I'd say, and the NHS as a whole. You know, the the demand has been really sustained and really high, between Christmas and year, we had. The highest call rates in our history. You know, on one day, call volume went uh, above eight thousand for the first time ever. Um, we were regularly going above seven and a half thousand on a daily basis. We were having there were five hundred calls without resources to send. You know, which is dangerous, which is really dangerous. You know, there were ca- cardiac arrests with no resources to no resources to send. So. Um, yeah, this second wave has been way, way harder than the first. Yeah. But thankfully, I mean, it seems like things are settling down a little bit from the ambulance perspective. You know, I think the nature of our work is that it's quite transient. So we can see we can see the effects very quickly, you know, when it it all it takes is a patient to pick up a foot, pick up a phone, you know, and we're there. But within hospitals it's very different because, you know. COVID patients will stay days, weeks or months. Um, So the effects have have felt much longer.
0: Jerome, just the the film really does unpack um, your love of rock climbing quite nicely. And also, like you said, the transient time of the first and second wave and how from your narrative, how quickly the evolution of, of things were changing. But what, how have you optimised your own approach and mindset to mental health? Maybe outside of rock climbing, is there anything that you've done separate, maybe that the film didn't show, that we could, that we could capture or, or indeed get an insight into?
1: Yeah, well, I think um, optimising your mindset really depends, relies on self-knowledge and just knowing how you respond to stresses. So I'm, for instance, I'm a quite a routine-driven person. I thrive within routine. Um, and that can either be a healthy routine or it can be an unhealthy routine. <laughs> and you just have to make that switch. Um, so um, I think very much like a, a healthy mindset and routine, it, although it requires more effort, it's ultimately you know so much more productive. So when you're working back-to-back shifts, um, you know, 12-hour shifts, I still try and find the time to make healthy food, to go for a run or to do some kind of like strength or climbing-based training. And it's that, you know, it's that fundamental healthy body, healthy mind attitude. Um, On the other side of the coin, you know, you could just resort to stress eating, drinking after shifts as a way of winding down and coping, um, neglecting your body. And shift work, as we know, is very unhealthy for you. Um, so it's about learning what your triggers are, how you operate within them, how you optimize your approach. Um, and ultimately, uh, you know, you need to just find a way of, of coping, you know, finding coping mechanisms that are healthy and that, that feel right for you. Um, so I, I haven't been able to uh, climb during either lockdown um, for lack of equipment, for lack of time but I've tried to apply myself to other skills. Um, and believe it or not, I found I'm doing a lot of hand standing at the moment and headstanding. standing. <laughs> I found that really helpful. Um, I've always, you know, it's a, a skill that I've always wanted to work on and now is a golden opportunity. All you need is a, is a, you know, a square, a, a piece of floor to do it. Um, and I'm a very goal driven person. Um, so I find goals really, you know, really motivating, um, so I set myself the challenge in the first wave to do a 30 second handstand and in the second wave to, I, I reached that uh, and in the second wave to do a, a one minute handstand. <laughs> so, uh, it's going pretty well and it's fun. It's cool. You know, it's a cool kind of skill to try and muster. Um, and I think seeing the world upside down is quite refreshing in a way, you know, it's like a having any perspective, um, and it also taps into that focus and the attention to detail that i miss in climbing you know you need almost obsessive attention to detail to kind of really see gains and there's no when you're doing it um you know when you're doing yoga for instance there's no there's no intrusive thoughts you know there's no room for any intrusive imagery you really need to be in the moment to be present um and i mean like i just touched upon yoga and it's something that i've been doing more and more and it probably helps that My girlfriend is a yoga instructor. (laughs) Um, But I mean, yoga was initially just a form of meditation. Um, The original yogis, you know, they kind of realized that actually sitting still wasn't the best way to focus the mind. And that actually movement was a very potent way to tap into that that flow state. Um, So when you do something like yoga, it requires a totally different part of the brain. Um, and I I, you know, it's something that I use as a coping mechanism now, you know, just to really remove myself from from anything work related. Um, so to answer your, to answer your question, it's really for me about self-knowledge, about um, you know, working within a structure, being disciplined, and prioritizing, you know, my health and fitness. So I'd, I'd be I'd forget for that
0: drum so, just looking at the, um, you know, the movie does a really good job at, at documenting your experiences um, over a, a number of, sort of days and/or weeks, and your perspectives in in the first wave of the COVID nineteen pandemic. But um, could you speak to sort of sort of the onslaught or daily triage that 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 the, that, the, that the public has to deal with around COVID and sort of this heightened sense of awareness from from a multitude of of information versus what you see on the front line how do you cope with this sort of daily triage and and and, or how should people cope with this uh, uh, almost overwhelming sense of triage of information around the pandemic
1: yeah that's an interesting point i mean i think you have to be really selective about where you get your information from um so I basically have tuned out to most of you know the kind of typical news sources out there, and certainly nothing on social media. Don't touch it with a with a barge pole, you know. Um, and I've got colleagues who've done the same, you know, colleagues which I really admire and respect, and and who are normally very tapped into to what's going in going on in current affairs and in the world. But I think it's really unhelpful to have this kind of frenzy of information um out there so you're just being really selective about you know what you listen to what you consume um uh, and and if needs need be just totally tuning out of it because when you're when you're dealing with it every day you know it's just unhelpful i think to a certain extent um being bombarded to that um to that level so yeah knowing knowing what to what to consume what to what to read um and when to totally leave it and to go and do some yoga
0: (laughs) i think that that ties into my next question really around there is a real self a self-care theme on the on the webcast podcasts just from a the majority of of guests really advocate self-care in in, in a multitude of ways really and I suppose that notions towards self-care and, and in everything you were were saying before uh, in your answers around yoga and how you eat and how you sleep and how you triage information. Is there, is there any, any other ways that you would advocate maybe self-care in in the staff to to safeguard their mental health? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's really easy to feel disempowered when you're at work, when you're doing shifts, and when you're you know in the ambulance service the nature of the work is that you know you get ping the job you have no say in in what it is and you must attend it um so it's it's really easy to to feel powerless and i think trying to regain as much of that power or that self-determination as possible is no bad thing and something i fully advocate so for instance it's not an option for everyone but you know, I work, I work banks, which is effectively a zero hours contract. So I've tried to, to get hold, get a handle on on my timetable so that I can prioritize climbing, for instance, or, you know, if you're a cyclist, you know, you know, going cycling. Um, uh, So getting that power, regaining that power, I think is is essential. Um, When I first joined the ambulance service, um, I really struggled to to adapt to shift work and find that life that kind of work-life balance. It was totally skewed towards towards work. Um and I felt like I was missing out all the time. You know, all my friends were going on these really epic sounded trips and and yeah, it was just um it was, it just wasn't sustainable. Um so that was when I made the decision to go bank um and to move to Sheffield as well so I could be closer, nearer to to climbing and to the P District, which I love. Um, so i think there's there's a lot that can be done as an indiv- individual um but there's also pr- probably a lot more that can be done from a service or trust perspective um there is i mean the LAS have done some really good things really positive things like offering bank contracts uh, they have things like self-rostering where people staff can actually decide you know they, they still work full-time or 30 hours a week, or whatever, but they're able to to what to decide which days and which shifts and which places. Um, but there are other options, you know, there's part-time working. Um, but I think a lot more can be done from trust to, to try and allow staff to, to be more empowered, to pursue, you know, things outside of their career. And it would probably have a really positive impact on staff morale, which, as we know, is a very fragile thing.
0: So, Jerome, could you speak to any unintended positive aspects that the pandemic might have brought about, either in your own life or or anecdotal observations that you've seen in other people?
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, she's going to help hate me for saying this, but I actually met my girlfriend at the end of the first wave. (laughs) So that's a fantastic outcome, in my opinion. (laughs) Um, But I think there's probably also just a greater appreciation and recognition for health professionals in general. Um, And and maybe this is premature, but maybe a slight reshuffle in societal values. You know, um, I think that we have to move away from financial greed as a society, you know, from, from polluting industries from societal and racial inequalities, you know, which creates so many um, disparities of health that we see um, on the front line um, and in healthcare. So, uh, I hope that we can now start moving towards, um, you know, a, a more equal uh, society. Um, you know, which has a greater emphasis on health and welfare. On the environment um so yeah I mean, maybe that's a pie in the sky but that'd be really nice
0: <laughs> <laughs> so drum as we come kind of to land on the conversation um just could you just maybe illustrate to us what the results of winning the film festival have brought about has there been any sort of results and feedback that you've you've got from viewers and or opportunities that the uh that the film has brought about
1: yeah i mean the film has had just an incredible reception you know overwhelming um so we won the best short film uh, in kendall um but we also won the um people's choice award so that was something that nico and i had no idea about um so we weren't, you know canvassing or trying to you know get people to vote for us but essentially it's uh it's a, a prize which is given um it's like a popular you know popular choice uh, prize so people who who you know watched all the films at kendall could select a film which they they like the most and and you know we're, we're honored to have won that which is incredible um and nico also wants to take it to several other um, film festivals you know for him it's a, a really big career break so that's fantastic to see you know a growth in his um in his career uh, towards adventure film um and just generally, you know, it's it's been really nice. Just strangers, strangers, and and friends and family, um, but also just random strangers coming up and and um, sending messages of support and saying how much they enjoyed it. Not just through the film, but you know, I've, I've tried to um, to write as much as possible and speak as much as possible about the pandemic, so that people feel a bit more connected to it, um, and so they. I don't know, just understand it from, from our angle, which is, you know, it's, it's what we do is, you know, it's a privilege to, to, to be a paramedic or to be a healthcare worker, to serve our community, um, and to see, you know, life and death you know, the bleeding edge of it, you know, to be at the right at the cutting edge. That's originally why I got into it. Um, so it's, it's been phenomenal. Like, you know, people just coming up and, and, um, Expressing their, their gratitude or thanks or, you know, um, yeah, it's been really really touching.
0: So, Jerome, just if, if anyone wanted to watch it, um, this the Rock Up Lockdown movie, how would they go about it? What's what's the what's the easiest way to access the access the movie?
1: Well, I, I wish that it was publicly available at the moment, um, for, as in free to view, but sadly it's not. But if but the good news is that if you have um Amazon Prime then it's available there both the UK and the US version um, you could also purchase it for I think the small sum of £4.44 if you don't have Amazon Prime <laughs> um, it's just because uh, Nico wants to take it to other film festivals so I think it's just behind you know it's behind paywalls pay at the moment but at some point in the future it will be available in the public domain and I'm really thrilled for, for when that comes about but until then, Amazon Prime is the way forward. I think it's available on Vimeo Pay as well. But yeah, just get yourself a, an Amazon Prime account or borrow someone else's uh, details.
0: Listen, I paid four pounds forty-four on Vimeo to watch it, and it's it's worth every penny. Actually, it's a, a, a fantastic short movie. Only ten minutes of your life, but it really is actually a fantastic insight. Shot beautifully. It, it, it really tells your narrative really nicely and then transitions to the, the kinesthetic you know landscape and and rock climbing just in a beautiful way. The cinematography is great and the, the soundtrack's great as well. So I was really impacted by it and maybe it's because I am a paramedic and you know my family are in Sheffield. My history is within London for, for 20 years. And I can identify with it, but it really struck a chord in me. So I would massively advocate people go and watch it, this rock-up lockdown. It's such a fantastic short little video.
1: Thank you very much, Ian. I'm really touched. Yeah, it means a lot.
0: It's an absolute pleasure, absolute pleasure. Jerome, absolute pleasure just speaking to you over the past hour. And um, if anyone wants to reach out to you, is there there any which way? Or would you rather direct the film? How how would you uh, prefer it?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, if people want to get in touch, um, you know, uh, uh, directly, then they can email me. Uh, when I, my email is jerome.moat at gmail.com. Um, I've got Instagram as well, which is just my name. So they can just send me a direct message. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I welcome any feedback or comments or people's stories. You know, it's it's really, I think it's really important to, to discuss people's you know people's experience of the pandemic because it's been a really unsettling and quite a traumatizing time for some people um not just healthcare workers but you know patients and and patients relatives and and um you know (laughs) i think each healthcare profession always feels sorry for the for the next so you know we feel like we've had it bad but we haven't had it as bad as like the the a nurses who haven't had it as bad as the critical care nurses and so on. So, um, yeah, I, th- I think it's really important to hear each other's stories. Um, and I think there's actually like a, a lack of voices from the grassroots. You know, there's whenever we hear anything from the ambulance service, it's always from, from management. And that will give you a very, you know, down the line and quite a dull, know reflection of what's going on um so i think i would encourage anyone who is grassroots healthcare worker to make themselves heard and to share their story because i think it's a really positive thing and it's a really great way of like processing
0: what's happened i completely agree with that jerome and i think it's that that fundamental organic narrative around around their anecdotal experience on the front line is powerful. And I I wholeheartedly agree. Jerome listen, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you and thank you so much.
1: Thanks very much, Ian. Pleasure.